Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of year again. And for several years now, I have to ask Allison how many, how many times we've done this. Uh, but do you know Allison? Off the top of your head? This is number five. Number it's been five years. Wow, time flies. Five years, folks. Uh, that Make It Plain has been working with Why Hunger and featuring Hungerthon annually at least. And I always say to Allison, we got to do more. Uh, yeah. Not just this time of year, but she's pledged to me the first year. She's gonna hit me up, and I'll be doing a lot more. Hopefully, Allison Cohen is back with us here on Make It Plain, the Senior Director of Programs at Why Hunger. And also with us, again, we've spoken to the organization before, but I think the first time we've spoken with Rob, he's the co-founder and member of the leadership committee uh, of the Take Back the Land movement. Uh, He's also uh, with Partners for Dignity and Rights. Happy to have Rob Robinson here as well. My brother, how are you? Welcome to Mexico. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, well, happy holidays uh, to both of you. Uh, Allison, yeah, it's been it's been five years, but I guess well, let's start here, Allison. I guess it's different this year in COVID. What impact um, mm-hmm. is COVID hang having on hunger? Yeah, so it's really having a um, very debilitating and disastrous um, impacts. Um, I always though want to point out that prior to March, prior to when this pandemic struck, there were 37 million Americans hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, according to the census, according to the USDA census, 37 million people not able to get enough food to eat. We are now rapidly approaching 54 million. That's about 16% of our population. And um, the, the thing that I believe is that we need to pay attention to 
is that, and I think the opportunity in this, um, if there, I can't say that it's a pleasant opportunity, but the opportunity in all of this is that um, we are able, many people who have never really experienced this before are able to see, are able to bear witness to the uh, deep fault lines that are in, that, that make up our society, the deep fault lines in our food system and our, in our um, uh, uh, social sector in, um, and also in our lack of basic human rights. So I think there's an opportunity here to, as we, as we talk about how incredibly um, difficult it is for so many people, so many people are standing in food bank lines for the very first times in their lives. And many other people are witnessing those long lines because there's, you know, like here at the, in Brooklyn, the Barclays Center, um, it, you know, it, some days it wraps twice around and there's just not enough food that they run out. They have to say, we're, we're done, not enough food. And then you've got the North Texas uh, food bank that the day before Thanksgiving had six, six mile long, um, a line of cars waiting to access food the day before Thanksgiving. So it is, it's dire, it's dire. And I'm sure Rob can say the same thing about um, the sector that he's most passionate about, which is um, housing and homelessness. Talk to us about that wood, if you would, Rob, about the impact COVID is having on homelessness and housing. So for me, and and thank you, Allison, and thank you, Mark. And I just just a quick comment on Allison's review of the Barclays Center. For me, I, I was there one day last week, and it was a stark reminder of just what Allison said. So I saw the line wrapped around, and then I look across the street at the Stop and Shop supermarket that is basically empty because people don't have the resources to go in there and purchase anything. Right. So, you know, it really, you know, it can really paint a picture for you, a stark picture of reality of what's going on in our community now. But I think for me, Mark, um, there was a message from our government and it came from the center for disease control in March, which was basically shelter in place. And I work in the financial district. Um, I'm formerly homeless, so it's an issue that I care about. And as I come to work every day through the Fulton Street train station, I see people that sleep in that train station on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And it just, as I heard one day, I have the earphones in, I'm hearing that message being repeated over the radio, shelter in place. And I sort of gasped for air, like, what do these folks do if they're telling you to stay inside? So it, it was a call to action for me personally, um, using... Uh, my my thoughts and the people that I'm connected to to sort of push uh, agencies in a certain direction. So I reached out to organizers across the country and said, we need to make an organized effort to push the federal government to put homeless, street homeless people into vacant hotels. And we ramped up those efforts early in March and were pretty much successful, you know, as successful as we could be with the money that was available. It just made sense. You have these vacant hotels, right? And you have people living on the street and you're, you're saying shelter in place, but they have no place to go. And I think the government 
it made sense to the government also that they quickly negotiated deals through FEMA. It was a little weird. If you didn't understand the money flow, it mm-hmm. could be a problem in a particular city. But luckily, we have relationships with other organizations like Why Hunger and other folks who work on these issues that know how to access those funds. And that was with the support of the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty in D.C. that really connected us in a real way with the Center for Disease Control and understood the flow of those resources. Mm-hmm. So you were able to get a sizable number of homeless housed in the hotels, Rob? Yeah, in New York City, there are about 15,000 people that either came out of congregate shelters, by that I mean living in closed spaces or street homeless that were moved into um, single room hotels. They have their own room in a hotel right now, and it still exists. And as far as I know, those funds won't run out until February, but um, that is the question. What happens after February? You right. know, you hear a lot of back and forth with the government now about a new stimulus package. Some say yes, some say no, and, you know, our government's not reacting. But this problem could flare up again, right? You know, the food issue, housing issues, because people lost work, Mark, and, you know, folks are still, you know, they're, they're hanging by a thread, and people yeah. are in survival mode right now. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a that's a double edged sword, Allison. We come to hunger, and it comes to whole homelessness. But, but what we also want to do, um, as those of you are listening to this show, we want to encourage you because you can do two things at once, especially if you're on your phone. Um, you can listen to this, and then at the same time, um, make a donation uh, to Hungerthon because this is. Uh, the time uh, to do just that, um, to make a donation to help um, with those um, who are hungry, who are dealing with these things. We invite you to go to uh, hungerthon.org while you're listening to us. Um, Allison, why don't we talk a little bit about how long Hungerthon has mm-hmm. been in existence um, what some of his successes have been and, and why each year it continues to grow and why it's so urgent this year in 2020. Sure. So thank you. Thank you for so much for this opportunity. Um, so we, the first Hungerthon campaign was in 1975, launched by Why Hunger. And it, since then, it's become an annual Thanksgiving tradition, predominantly on the radio. Um, it's branching out a little bit podcasts and to other venues as well, which is really amazing. And it's been an opportunity for us to really not not just raise critical funds to support the people that are on the front lines doing this work, but it's also an opportunity for us to raise awareness, for us to to, to speak truth to power a little bit, for us to have a have a put out a um a spin a different narrative, right? Than the narrative that charity is what we need to be doing. We all have a moral obligation to be Yes, and charity will not end hunger. And we can end hunger. Hunger is a solvable problem. And I think that's a, a core message that we want to um, to give to people. And particularly during this time of, of COVID and what it's wrought, it's really giving us the opportunity to, I think, amplify that message and, um, and speak to the urgency of it. Because so many people for the first time are seeing it for what it is and feel outraged by it. And in some ways, there, uh, what we're seeing is that there is definitely an increase um, in in giving directly to food banks, which is really important now. Don't don't get me wrong. People people that are in need now need services. 
And I think it's still good to be outraged by the fact that the U.S. government, which should be providing, should be obligated to care for the most vulnerable, are not doing that and have not done that in decades. So, um, so it's a real, it's a real both and, you know, issue here, and and something that we we really hope to get across, and that through this hungerthon campaign, that we got to do something now. At the same time that we're digging down to the roots of this problem, and also understanding that it's not just about food; it's about it's about housing, it's about access to land, it's about uh, water rights. Um, fundamentally, it's about human rights. I know that's what Rob and I believe, and that's where we've connected over the years. Is that this is really a rights-based issue, and the U.S. has never ever signed on to the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights that we had a hand in developing in 1946 when Eleanor Roosevelt helped to write the UN Declaration on Human Rights. Our government has never, ever embraced that. Yeah. Rob, talk to us about the the land issue, if you would, and where this fits into all of this. Yeah, I think, you know, if there's a, a theory that I learned early on, being homeless when I came out of homelessness and started organizing and working in communities, the message was we need housing, 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 housing. But it didn't take too long for me to understand you can't control housing unless you control the land underneath it, right? Your your life will always be at bay if you don't have access to land. And, you know, through Allison's organization, Why Hunger, I was fortunate enough to travel to Brazil and meet uh, the landless workers movement down there. And that's where I got a fundamental understanding of what land means to us in our lives. So if you had access to land, you could grow food. If you had access to land, you could build an abode to keep you away from the elements. Um, If you had access to land, when there are sick people within your group, you could take the things that you grew in the earth and heal the sick, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems to... It seems to be an a, a, an entryway to life, a pathway to life, so access to land. So I think it's critical. And, you know, the Brazilian Constitution says land has to serve a social function, right? It has to be growing food, housing people. But we have a fundamental different understanding here. It's a commodity, right? And if you can't pay, you can't have it. And that, to me, is problematic. So my organizing has always been around access to land and meeting people's basic needs, Food is is one of those needs. Water is one of those needs. We have people living in this country without access to water, right? You know, so it right. it it all comes down to human rights, as Allison said. When you when you think about it, these are all meeting people's basic needs, and we sort of shield ourselves from that as a country because we put it under this tent of a democracy. How can a democracy ever be called into question? We would never deny people their fundamental rights. Well, yes, we do. Yeah, and I think that, you know, take a rights-based framework, then then you 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 also it you know it's not just about meeting people's basic needs, it's about meeting those needs and doing it in such a way that folks maintain their dignity, right? So standing in line at a food bank, being in a car a six-mile line long, that's really not a dignified way of accessing food and nutrition for yourself and your family. Think about, Rob, what you were saying earlier about the Barclay Center, about the stop and shop. Imagine if 
if all those people standing in line had um, gotten some kind of stimulus, I don't know what you would call it, but some kind of support, some economic support so that they could uh, get food for themselves. And I think fundamentally that's what we need to understand is that people, the only reason people don't have food, the only reason they're hungry is because they cannot afford to buy food. And we know that these are folks, by and large, 50% of folks that access food banks have at least one full-time working adult in the household. And that, my friends, is tragedy and a um, something to be outraged about. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't help, Rob, but look at some of your bio and some of the work you've done internationally. You mentioned Brazil. I'm just curious. Um, are other countries dealing with this COVID crisis as it relates to homelessness better than the United States is, too? Is, is that what's happening? I'm not so sure I can say better. I do think they work with the more of an urgency. Let me put it that way. I okay. think I've been on many a conference call with folks saying evictions are still a problem around the world in this age okay. of COVID. So I just spent last Friday on the phone with UN special rapporteurs, the one on the right to adequate housing, the one on extreme poverty. And the issue was to put together a joint statement to saying how, how outraged they are that people are being evicted at this time. So I think it's problematic, but I think what people around the world are realizing is we need to come together around this issue and have a singular message that can probably light a fire, so to speak, under the governments. And I think organizers are really doing a good job of that. I'll be on the, again on an international call on Friday for three hours around that same issue, and we will be joined by the new special rapporteur in the right to adequate housing, Balakrishnan Rajagopal, who, you know, wants to, he put out a statement in August saying um, he's upset by the number of people facing evictions now, and now they're going to make some demands that evictions must stop during COVID. So mm -hmm. I think it's still a problem. I think other countries are, are acting with more of an urgency, but I think it's a problem worldwide. Yeah. And I think I think it's also something else I want to underscore, and this is something that I know Rob and I also really connect on, is that um, governments are not going to, they're not just going to do this, right? We have to hold them accountable. That's right. And that takes building power with uh, people on the front lines, those that are most impacted by um, food, hunger, health, housing, those that are most impacted by it. Um, we need to support those organizations that are on the front lines that are organizing folks to, um, number one, find different ways like landless workers movement in, in Brazil that's taking back land and, and you know, um, leaning on that constitutional right to land as a social function. You know, being innovative, being creative and finding ways to meet their needs with dignity at the same time. Um, they're demonstrating the way to do it, and they're advocating that um, the government then step into their role as a duty bearer um, to human rights. Yeah. And you mentioned, too, Rob, how even with the homeless situation, the hotels, so that runs until February in terms of hunger. And, and first of all, you know, Alice and I were talking before the broadcast, you all, and we were talking about how, you know, the news has come out. Government was not interested in getting 
um, enough vaccines early on when they had an opportunity. This could have been. So they don't care about vaccines. They don't care about people being hungry and homeless. So so what is this? Uh, I'll go to you first, Rob, in terms of homelessness. What happens after we get out of the crisis? And that's relative because we we kind of subsided a little bit before the fall came back and things got rough again. But but and not to mention, will homeless people have adequate access to the vaccines? That's another big question. These are all questions, Mark, and valid questions, right? Um, I'm working with housing groups in New York that have written their own piece of legislation. Allison talked about building power. So community-based organizations and their membership have written three bills that are submitted to the New York legislature. One bill would give a voucher for housing for folks that would last at the very minimum one year past the official end of the pandemic. Then they've written uh, a piece of legislation that has been introduced that would guarantee no evictions happen one year past the end of the pandemic. So I think these are significant pieces of legislation because as of December 31st, 40 million people in this country are at risk of eviction. And I think that same 40 million will be hungry also. They will be standing on the food line. So there's a direct correlation, right? So we need a reaction. Our government isn't reacting right now. And that's partly due the current administration still has the space, so to speak, until January 20th. But something has to happen because this is going to come on the backs of, of all of our government, whether it be local, state, or federal. You know, 40 million people at risk of eviction, it's going to be an overwhelming number. So there's going to have to be some type of reaction. I don't know what it is. Um, again, folks are pushing from the ground up and, and making their voices heard. And I'll just give you an idea. In New York, they've attempted to open up housing court, which is a civil court. Um, mm. Every time they attempted to open up, the grassroots communities get out there and shut them down. You will not do any business. We will block these courts. Right. And, and now this conversation is happening with the unions because the unions are feeling that they're at risk, like so court offices and other folks are feeling that they're at risk of going in these crowded halls of these courtrooms. So, you know, I think that's what's going to have to happen, a groundswell of community activism and people coming together, as Allison alluded to earlier, building their power to push back on the system. Allison, what will access to the vaccine and whatnot be for people who are suffering with with hunger? Do we know? Um, I don't I don't think we know. I think that, um, like I said, there are many, many people that are food insecure that that can't make their you know, can't feed their families on a weekly basis. And um, for those folks, many of them are working. Um, I think that they will likely um, fall. Some of them will fall into categories of, you know, immunocompromised or elderly or healthcare workers. I mean, we're talking about healthcare workers that are in standing in line to get food, right? So um, I, I don't think, I think this is the interesting thing about food insecurity in this country. It certainly doesn't hit everybody the same. And the, the hardest hit communities are african American people of color and indigenous, particularly that's been highlighted tremendously during COVID. And third, um, many of the essential workers that we're 
clapping our hands for, many of them. And those that we don't even think of as essential workers, like the grocery store clerks or the people moving, uh, you know, harvesting in the fields and moving food from farm to plate. Um, those folks are not making living wages. And that's one thing that Why Hunger is getting engaged with um, on a national scale in, starting in January is to really advocate for living wages. And we'd like to say thriving wages. So we think that's a little bit, I'm not sure that'll pick up, but, but you know, where you've got minimum wage, let's not just raise the minimum wage. Let's make it a wage that allows people to thrive in yeah, the society. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that's, um, I don't think we know yet. I think it's, I, I don't know that the, I don't know what the vaccine rollout is going to be, but I can imagine that it will probably be a lot of healthcare workers first, elderly, immunocompromised, and certainly some of those folks are among those waiting in line for food. Can I just jump in here on this wage thing? I think, you know, that's a, that's a very important point because there was a struggle a couple of years back, the fight for 15, mm. when it's clearly stated that $15 an hour wouldn't get you a basic apartment in New York City. You needed to make $28 an hour. So we find people that are rent burdened and burdened by other issues, other financial issues that make a decision. Well, do I keep a roof over my head or do we eat this week? That's, that's, that's problematic. I mean, there's something yeah. fundamentally wrong with that. Yeah, do sure. I pay the rent or do I buy the medicine I need to stay alive? Right. Right. right? So I, you know, yeah, we have to fight for better wages. And I, I, I would just say this, without outing the union, I could say there are many city workers. One particular union has reached out to me quite a bit about uh, bringing their members into the conversation around homelessness. There are city workers living in shelters funded by the city. It's, it's head-scratching. It's head-scratching. <laughs> there are city workers living in shelters. Living in shelters because they just can't afford to live in the city that they work in, right? And they've become financially insecure, right? They have, you know, rent. They're so rent burdened that they just couldn't afford it. Three or four kids or either they lost their job because of COVID, right, and can't work, ended up in a shelter. Three or four kids. I can't. I have to stay with my kids because they have distant learning, right? Now I'm in a shelter, that doesn't have the best Wi-Fi, so distant learning. There are these problems that all feed into this issue just to magnify all these economic, cultural, and social issues that we're going through, and COVID just exacerbated. And I, 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 I would be remiss if I said these didn't exist prior to COVID. COVID right. exacerbated them. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think that's a core message. It's a right. core message that we want people to hear is that, yes, we're, we're – it's being amplified. It's being aggrandized. We're seeing it. Um, and some people are seeing it for the first time, but it has been there. It has been there for decades. I mean, we were at 10% of covering 10, between 10 and 11% of our population food insecure for the last four decades. Right? So that's not acceptable in my book. Um, Allison, I don't want to just gloss over this point. I think I heard you say that there are um, frontline workers, even some medical staff in this pandemic who are in line for food too. Did I, did I hear you say that? 
Yes, there are. There are those that are being paid, um, you know, minimum wage or, a, or slightly above a minimum wage. If they're a single parent, for instance, they're not going to have enough. They're not making enough. Right. Um, we've got other. And, and if you think about the other essential workers, particularly the um, health care providers, home health care providers, um, Healthcare providers in um, nursing homes and other kinds of situations. Those folks, they they're working and they're probably working harder than any of us, and they lots of them do not make uh, a living wage. Um, yep. and certainly, if they have any kinds of complications, I think one thing we've learned in in this pandemic is that two thirds of our nation is um, is vulnerable, very vulnerable to uh, losing you know lose a job. You know, you're you're in the food line. You have an unexpected health crisis. You're in the food line. I mean, that's that's the real sort of um, uh, tragedy. I think is that um, we've we've gotten we've followed a path that has um, really uh, deepened the wealth inequity, right? The divides in this country over the last fifty years. It's just the gap has grown. The chasm has grown, and um, and, you know, it's it's time for us to uh, put an end to that. And that is going to take uh, really building power, really organizing folks. You know about organizing, Mark. And, yeah. um, you know, and <laughs> I've seen you. I've seen you out there. I see you on. I see you organizing every single one of these shows. But we've, we've <laughs> this, this idea in this country of a social safety net. Right. Um, you know, Public housing used to be that, but we've seen systemic disinvestment in that, right? So this whole idea of a social safety net to, to give people a minimum standard of life, many of the Nordic countries practice that on a regular basis. Here, it's totally dismissive. If you, you know, if anybody can make it here, forget the roadblocks we throw in front of you. You right. failed, right? There's this, we paint people with this broad brush. You can't make it in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, what's the right. matter with you? You fail. But we we totally neglect to talk about the roadblocks that were thrown, particularly in certain groups of people, right? Isolating groups, um, allowing them, not allowing them to to succeed in this country, right? And setting them up to fail, as I like to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and Mark, I know you work with uh, Reverend Barber. And the Poor People's Campaign is one of those efforts to really build power um, that 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 across the you know economic lines, right? So it's you know, and and I think that's a critical effort that I know why hunger is behind, and I'm I think um, pretty sure Rob's involved with it too, and it's um you know it's an important effort. So that's that's an example of really building power among those who are the most affected. Yeah. And, and and obviously that's why it's always good to talk with you all because we don't talk about any of this enough at all. We don't talk enough about what people are dealing with and what people are facing, especially um, in in a crisis like this. And and it's and it's the holidays, so folks, you know, stress level goes up, the anxiety, the trauma, the depression, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, those of us who have. Um, it's tough. And this one will be in particular tough, um, very difficult because um, because we're dealing with COVID. So, again, we invite people uh, to support Hungathon.org. Um, they are helping people 
find food. They are working with Rob Robinson and all the organizations he work he works with to help people find shelter. Um, in uh, it, at this time, you know, there there are people. When, as he said, when they say shelter in place, there's some people who have not had any shelter to shelter in place in. And then here there's city workers in New York um, who are in shelters because they can't afford. So so let me just ask this question, Rob, on that point. Is that unique to New York or is that happening in other cities as well? Here's the here's the strange thing about this, Mark. So for me, I'm formerly homeless, as you heard. I was street homeless in Miami. Miami has a population of about 2 million people, two shelters. Basically, as a single adult, you couldn't get help. But there are some people that would applaud New York City because there is all this help. There are 554 shelters in New York. So the argument that I bring is, okay, New York has created a way to hide the homeless problem, put them in shelters, right? So it's a, you know, it's a... It's a mixed problem, right? Like, um, so I don't think shelter is the answer, and that's what brought me into this work, right? When I came into this work, uh, I I spent ten months in a New York City shelter. When I came out, people said to me, "You only in there for ten months?" And I'm like, "Well, that's nine months too long. This is some. If there's an expectation that ten months is a short period of time, there was a systemic problem. So I think we, you know, we haven't gotten at the root cause, just like." Mm. We could get at the root cause of hunger and homelessness if there was political will and willingness to do yeah. it, but we haven't done it. And that's the fundamental problem. That's where organizing comes in. And you said earlier, making space, right? So that, for me, that always means political education. Step back from fighting the fires that Allison and myself are often caught up in and create a space to have a conversation about the life you want to live what's your vision for a good life and how we get there. Union yeah. should serve that purpose, but they seem to have stepped back from that role. Right. Yeah. And the same is true for food banks. I mean, food banks have done an amazing job of allowing folks to allowing folks who have and who donate to kind of release this moral safety valve, like, Oh, okay. I've done good. I've done some charity. And, um, but, but they, they meanwhile never see those people that are now they are because of COVID and, and social distancing and not being able to be inside. But it's the same thing. Food banks largely hide the problem or at least obfuscate it. And, um, and, uh, and food banks are not the answer. Food banks are not ending hunger. They are so critical. And the people that are doing that work right now are, they should be among the heroes that we are clapping for. I absolutely 100% believe that. People need to eat now. And we cannot fool ourselves that charity ultimately is going to end hunger. Private charity is not going to end hunger. Um, also, uh, Why Hunger, the organization uh, that puts on Hungerthon every year, um, does work uh, not only in helping to get people, get food to people and have, help people get access to food, um, but also um to uh, try to um, help farmers um, and, in fact, has trained farmers, 104,000 farmers, in fact, in sustainable agroecological farming practices to grow healthy food. Because um, we also, and that's important, especially in areas where there's space for that. But, um, you know, there are urban areas right here in this city 
that are food deserts. And I guess too, Rob, the food deserts are expanding depending upon how many of these businesses have, you know, stores and whatever have gone out of business as a result of COVID. That is, you know, uh, um, made the access to food in some neighborhoods even more scarce, hasn't it? It has. It, it's made it a challenge, but I, you know, I want to step back because I do think why hunger, and I, I love this share. I'm going to share a little bit of a story about my connection with why hunger and Bill Ayers, as we know, is the founder of Why Hunger, along with Harry Chapin. And Bill had long done a community-based radio program in New York. And as a member of Picture the Homeless, I was invited on Bill's show one night. And we go back and forth about some of the same issues we're talking about here. And I, Bill mentioned that urban farming. And I kind of snickered at the idea of growing food in, in urban areas. And Bill says, hey, Mr. Yankee fan, um, if I send you to an urban farm right near Yankee Stadium, let's make a deal. We'll make a handshake deal right here. You come back on the show and tell them about all the wonderful things you witnessed and the great food you ate at that urban farm that I sent you to. So I shook hands, and you know, about two months later, I had to humbly come back on the show and, and say, Bill, you were right. It was incredible. So I think what Why Hunger and other groups around the country has taught um, people how to do sustainable agriculture in urban areas. It's become popular, even in a place like New York. But yeah, there are some gaps and there are gaps in those particular areas. And this is the way I explain, because I work with a lot of young folks who do the mapping stuff. You know, I work with a group called the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. And they're constantly showing me maps of of different areas, mostly around evictions. But every time I see a map of food insecurity, food injustice, health care injustice, the maps all look the same. The same areas are the darkened areas. So I'm like, there's something going on here, right? So for me, it just says the 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 long history of injustice that has been placed in certain communities in this in the city, in the state, and in this country that we really need to address. And that's what a lot of our work is involved in. And that's where you take that step back to do the political and popular education to understand the historical context of what you're going through. This isn't only now during COVID. This has existed since. I think it's so important to make those connections. Yeah, yeah. And and if nothing else, Allison, these things have always been there, but, but COVID is making it a bit worse um, um, uh, right now. Um, and, and then too, if, 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 if my family is going to get in line and, and going to get food, um, there's probably, I mean, as hungry as people are, there's still some anxiety, maybe some hesitancy there because you don't want to get COVID either by going out right. and being amongst people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's, that's a real, that's a real thing, but I, and so I don't know, I have no data, I have no, I don't know if any studies have been done about the spread of COVID in those kinds of situations. I know that um, majority of the food banks and food pantries and soup kitchens that we work with closely, that they have put in place really strong measures to ensure um, that they are not spreading COVID. So I'm thinking about um, Red Sty Campaign Against Hunger, which is now just called the Campaign Against Hunger that you visited with me, Mark, mm-hmm. all those years ago. And um, and they are 
exemplary of this. I mean, they're just doing an amazing job of protecting their staff, their volunteers, and protecting the folks. Um, they've, they've switched their models. The West Side Campaign Against Hunger has done the same, same thing. They're doing more bringing the food to folks um, and to certain places as opposed to having folks come to them. And um, and I'll tell you, these kinds of things, they call it, it costs money. <laughs> you know, we got to support these organizations to do that really critical work at this time as well. Um, and, uh, and we need to also continue to support their efforts in um, working at the root causes, like, like Campaign Against Hunger in Bed-Stuy as a farm. They have a youth program. They're training folks in agroecology. This is a food bank, you know, and that this is the work that they're doing. That's the kind of um, shift that Why Hunger is, is really attempting to, um, uh, to promote and to make happen. Um, it's an angle I don't think people often think about, though. Um, shame involved. Yeah. We have gone a long way to shame somebody who's standing in that line, right? Um, there's been a lot of that. I can't say, you know, I haven't been able to talk to people like I have around homeless issues, but that was people would hold inside. I'm facing eviction. I'm, you know, I'm hungry, right? They would hold it inside. So I don't, I don't know what effect that has at this time, whether people have shed that or not, but I would think it still comes into play with some folks, right? I don't want to be seen standing in that line. My family's hungry, but I don't want to be seen because then I'll be marked as a failure. So I think it's also great to know that places like Why Hunger, right, is thinking about, you know, mutual aid, I think is the term we use, right? Mm -hmm. How can we yeah. deliver to you? Um, here's a way around that. But I, I would encourage people to share their stories because that's how you support the issues that Why Hunger is working on. If we hear from a thousand people in a particular neighborhood, there's something going on in that neighborhood with respect to a lack of food, mm -hmm. right? And you hone in on that problem and try to, to try to work directly on that problem. So I think that's a big part of this issue also where people are, are shamed, right? We've gone a long way to shame people in this country um, because they can't pay for food, even during a time, you know, again, I, I haven't been able to talk to people as is my custom at this time. You go out and you talk to people in the street, but, you know, prior to COVID, you know, those stories existed and it's, it's organizing work to get those stories out of people. Yeah. Something is wrong when the shame is only in that one direction and there's no shame. You said it. <laughs> for people who could do something. So, for yeah. example, Allison, I'm, I'm trying to remember the numbers from 34 million to 57 million during COVID. Right. 37 to 54. 37 to 54. I was close. So wait a minute. We know that some of that, if not much of it, comes from the lack of support oh, that yeah. this government has given people. And December 26th, the day after Christmas, if they don't pass some legislation, it's gone. It doesn't look like the unemployment's gone. There's all the stimulus is already gone. Right. Uh, eviction moratoriums in Robert. So you won't have to work Christmas weekend, my brother. Okay. I mean, you go, you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to sit just the work you do. You're not going to be afforded the opportunity to sit home and chill Christmas because no. because you, you got to wake up the morning after Christmas and deal with people who are probably going to be 
evicted. So that 54 million is going to go up some more. Where's the shame for the fools who won't do anything about that? You know, where's our collective shame for not helping those at this time of need in this situation? Y'all, that's why we want you to go to Hungathon. You can do something. You can help somehow with people. And again, the, the face of, of, of homelessness and hunger is looking more like the person next to you and me. Might be one of us. Right. Right. Thing. You know, we have a certain vision of that. And we do a lot to shame people ourselves and we think people look a certain way. But Allison just told us there are people who are working jobs in hospitals on the front line and in service jobs. That's why, see, this makes the point. Why are people who are black and brown disproportionately affected by COVID? Because they're on the front line doing the jobs yeah. for the, the, the lower salaries that others are not doing, those essential jobs, others can't afford not to go back to work. We can't. So we take those jobs and then we go in there and we get sick. So, you know, at, at some point, um, it's, you know, we'll get to this. And I mean, it's not happy work, but just to study somebody, Allison, needs to do a Venn diagram on something on hunger, homelessness, essential work, essential workers, COVID, you right. know. You know how many are, are are either hungry or homeless or get infected just because they're in the financial situation they're in and they work in some of these jobs. So so and the color of their skin, Mark. I'm, t- I'm sorry, but racism is an enormous. I mean, the, our systems, our our institutions, uh, perpetuating racism, and that is you know that's the legacy of this country, and that too we should be carrying a lot of shame about that and um, and working to to end it. So I, I think it's I don't think it's any accident that the the that there's a disproportionate number of black people with COVID-19 infected with COVID-19, disproportionate number of black people that are hungry, disproportionate number of black people that are homeless. This is not this is a fault of the system. It's a failure of the system, of the institutions. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. I want to thank you both, uh, Rob Robinson, Allison Cohen. Um, folks, please go to hungathon.org, be supportive. They have some some merch there you can get to. All of that supports. 86 cents on every dollar goes toward the work uh, that whyhunger.org is doing, that hungathon.org is doing. This will be going on um, through the holidays. I'm not trying to make everybody feel sad or bad on the holiday, trying to get you to do you, it. Can't go nowhere and do nothing, no how. So, <laughs> you know, we all are here. And but for the grace of God, uh, there goes one of us and, and somebody we know. I think if we think about this, each of us may be one person removed from someone who's lost a job or is living with some uncertainty at the end of this year. Some of the jobs that were there before COVID are gone forever and not coming back, especially in the city where we live. All these restaurants and stores, I walk down the street, a whole lot of stuff is closed down. People used to work there. So these people are probably looking for Rob or Allison to get some help. But you can help right now by please, man, please, sir, give, give, give. Hungathon.org. Support this work. We've been with Hungathon for five years. They've been doing it for since 1975. Millions of people they've helped. And this is year round. 
Um, so uh, and we're going to need more of this so that if we ha- if we did what um, Rob and Allison are often teaching people to do, you know, what's the saying? You give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man or woman how to fish. They are fed for a lifetime. If we thought that way, wouldn't no pandemic get us down? We would already be in a position to help and save ourselves. So, uh, folks, keep that in mind. Uh, again, Allison, Robert, we thank you. And God bless you for the angel work that you both are doing and for what the organizations and Hungathon, Why Hunger, what all of you are doing. Take the land back. Thank you both so much. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for amplifying this really important message. All right. Amen. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe. And wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.